It's Friday, the 6th of March, and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, panic over the coronavirus is on the rise, but is muddled messaging making things worse? Plus, the death of former UN chief Javier Perez de Cuellar. And do celebrity endorsements ever help politicians on election day? I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. The spread of the coronavirus is affecting people and business just about everywhere. Now it seems even Japan is having to rethink its plans for the upcoming Tokyo Olympics. But there's no reason to be alarmed just yet. The global spread of the coronavirus is compelling organizations to consider whether to adjust upcoming plans, and few calls are bigger than the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo. But maintaining a consistent message about such a decision is key. So it was a shame when Japan's Olympics minister, Seiko Hashimoto, seemed to accidentally float postponement by noting that Tokyo's contract only specifies the Olympics be held in 2020, not which month. The suggestion prompted a rebuke from the International Olympic Committee, saying there were no current plans for delay. Former UK ambassador to Japan, Sir David Warren, says it's not a considered attempt to prepare the ground for an eventual decision to cancel or to postpone. Indeed, let's not put the card before the horse. There's time to bring this virus under control before such a momentous decision is made. When Javier Perez de Cuellar began his tenure as Secretary-General of the United Nations, he was an unknown figure on the international stage, taking a seat at the top of an organisation that few at the time took seriously. But he quickly made it clear that he was ready to shake things up. Monocle's Andrew Muller has this report. I, Javier Perez de Cuellar, solemnly swear to exercise in all loyalty, discretion and conscience the functions entrusted to me as Secretary General of the United Nations to exercise in all... Javier Perez de Cuellar, the fifth Secretary General of the United Nations, has died at the age of 100. He served between 1982 and 1991, the twilight of the Cold War, and a period containing many other challenges, including the Falklands War, Israel's first invasion of Lebanon, and the Iran-Iraq conflict. He emerged from retirement in 2000 to serve briefly as Prime Minister of his native Peru. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Edward Mortimer, former Director of Communications in the Executive Office of the UN Secretary General. Um, Edward, he was the fifth of nine UN Secretary Generals so far. Where does he rank? I think he ranks quite high. Um, he was not a spectacular figure in the way of Dag Hammarskjöld or, dare I say it, Kofi Annan, who I had the privilege to work for myself. He came in with very low expectations when the Cold War was at its worst, and it took. Um, he was basically only brought in because two other candidates had sort of argued themselves into the ground, one supported by the Soviet Union, that was Waldheim, who was going for a third term, uh, but also rather lukewarmly by the West, and the other supported from Tanzania by China and a lot of the developing countries. And um, somebody described uh, Perez as everyone's last choice. You know, he was kind of seen as a very grey, or perhaps distinguished, but not at all um, charismatic. Uh, but mind you, that is how Hammarskjöld was, was perceived when he became Secretary General, and he certainly defied those expectations. I think Perez de Cuellar did so too, but in a rather different way, because he worked very steadily and gradually brought results. And of course, he was helped 
by the remarkable changes in the international situation which came about in the late 1980s when um, Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union and there was this sort of remarkable detente um, leading to eventually the disappearance of the Soviet Union, which actually happened more or less exactly on the day that Peres de Cuellar left office. Do you think he was liberated then to an extent by those low expectations? As you correctly point out, he was the compromise candidate between Kurt Voldheim and Salim Ahmed Salim. You arrive in an office like that with nobody really understanding who you are. It's a kind of freedom, isn't it? I, I think that's probably true. And it's funny because I remember that I was, as a journalist, on a visit to the UN in the early 1980s. And um, I met the, the, the famous Brian Urquhart, uh, and, um, who gave us a briefing. And then he said to me, you know, well, I, I was working for The Times then. And he said, you know, well, uh, can I help you at all? Does anybody like to see, would you like to see the Secretary General? And I remember thinking, why would I want to see him? You know, it didn't seem like he was actually anybody really very important. And that certainly changed by the time that Peres de Cuellar left. And I think that owed a lot to the quiet dignity and good sense that he had shown. And in fact, of actually not making headlines often enabled him um, to do very useful diplomatic work. Edward Mortimer, thank you very much for joining us. Finally today, do celebrity endorsements of politicians ever make a difference at the ballot box? Monocle's Robert Bound takes a look. Well, Super Tuesday made the race for the Democratic nomination a bit tasty. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Like the old story of the, well, the tortoise versus the tortoise. Neck and neck, but of course, without neckties. What is this, the 80s? What are they, Republicans? This is all about open collar, blue collar, taxes at how many cents in the dollar? One place in the race, though, where those wrinkly old septuagenarian necks aren't tied is the crucial field of celebrity endorsement. Biden's Biden is sweet time when it comes to getting the famous to jump on his party bus. While Elizabeth Warren, the Democrats' third-place player, was given a little boost by musician John Legend, smooth. Brilliant sprite Janelle Monet, ding! And the actress Ashley Judd, credible. Old Joe does have Alec Baldwin, which at least means that a future President Biden would be relatively safe from the of Saturday Night Live, but then he's only got Alyssa Milano, Melrose Place, anyone, and Deborah Messing of Will and Grace. I mean, he's also got Cher, but she just makes you wonder if Biden's been singing If I Can Turn Back Time under his breath for the last few months. OK, so Biden also has Sherry Lansing, the philanthropist and former Paramount Pictures chairwoman. But voting Biden because of someone non-glam in a glam business is a bit like supporting a soccer team because you think the owners have a sound policy on ticket pricing and expanding the brand through TV rights in Asia. It's nice to have, but it doesn't exactly excite the blood. Bernie, though, hell's bells, Bernie. Bernie could just stage the Oscars and the Grammys from his probably slightly messy sitting room. I mean, when I say the Oscars, they'd mostly be awarding quite serious films, films that make the work of Ken Loach and Mike Lee look like Saturday Night Fever. But nonetheless, let's do a little rundown here. Uh, there's R2-D2's human brother, Danny DeVito, the easily lampoonable right-on Hollywood gang who were murdered in Team America, John Cusack, Tim Robbins, Susan Sarandon. The time has come for us to start using our acting talents in a different way. We will persuade everyone to drive hybrid cars and stop smoking. As actors, it is our responsibility to read the newspapers and then say what we read on television like it's our own opinion. 
There's Mark Ruffalo. There's Spider-Man's girlfriend, Kirsten Dunst. Investigative non-hunger-striking documentarian Michael Moore. The 94-year-old bad cockney, Dick Van Dyke. The age question keeps coming up. I know that I'm 20 years older than Bernie. I have all my marbles. I could run for office if I wanted to. And the brilliant Sarah Silverman, who called Sanders a messy East Coast Jew. Who cares more about the welfare of his fellow Americans than his standing, or the press of his suit, or his, well, let's face it, hair. She went on to say combs are for pussies. Hang on, does she mean, I think she does mean it, a very different sort of President Bush. In music terms, Bernie's also killing it. The Sanders chart rundown includes hits from Ariana Grande, who's been conducting a chaste Twitter romance with Bernie, backstage in Atlanta, the pop star and the senator in their signature figure-hugging outfits, just in very different ways. The coolest band in New York, maybe, still, The Strokes, college nerd rock geniuses Vampire Weekend, folk warrior Bon Iver, Here Comes Trouble Lizzo, and someone who sounds like something Bernie wears when he can't wear cardigan A... Cardi B. And finally, of course, Public Enemy. The legendary rappers reportedly fired member Flavor Flav over a clash about performing at a rally for Sanders. Flav has since said that it has nothing to do with Sanders, whom he wishes luck. Chuck D, however, has personally endorsed the politician who, let's face it, does chime neatly with the group's anthem. difference then do all these names make to Biden and Bernie? Well, it's impossible to precisely quantify. But what does make a difference is turning non-voters into potential voters, i.e. encouraging people to register. In 2018, after one of her concerts in Tennessee, 65,000 people registered to vote after Taylor Swift endorsed the Democrats. From Sinatra to Oprah, maybe star power is just nice to have. But one thing's for sure, like Leo, Brad and Beyonce, Bernie does have one thing that often defines a winner. First name recognition. Mmm, I'm still thinking about combs are for pussies. For Monocle in London, I'm Robert Pound. Thank you, Rob. Elsewhere on today's agenda... Yesterday's edition of Italy's La Stampa reported on a huge new bookstore that's just opened its doors in Naples. Set across three floors, the Spark Bookshop stocks around 20,000 titles, mostly by independent publishers. It features a co-working space and it even has its own book imprint. The space was designed by the architect Michaela Musto and will also host a series of workshops. And guess how many people live in St. Petersburg? If you guessed 5.4 million, well, you're wrong. But you're also not alone. It's been revealed that the statistics agency, Petrostat, miscalculated the city's population. It's actually 7.1 million, 32% higher than the official figure. It's a failure that might have cost the city dearly in terms of funding, and might explain its stretched infrastructure and congested city centre. Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Monday. Enjoy your weekend. <laughs>